When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Valentina, and Valentina was a prisoner of financial abuse. It's a story of resilience, reverse manipulation, kidnapping, and escape plans. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. This is a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of toxic relationships. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning in to this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. Now, if you have not been to our website recently, please do go there if you want to be part of our show. Go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. And away we will go from there. And today is the last day I will be mentioning our letters to my narcissist episodes for, you know, it's taken a while to fill up uh, and get enough voicemails. We still aren't there yet. So we're eventually just going to put our letters to my narcissist on our bonus episodes. We'll just be reading letters for the most part as no one is actually using, uh, you know, the send voicemail part of our uh, website. So unfortunately, that's what is going to happen. So if you want to send in letters for us to read for you, uh, me or my old pal Melissa, please just send them to NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. So we now have a new friend of the show, and that is DomesticShelters.org. So if you are someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. DomesticShelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing, connect you with local resources, and find ways to heal and move forward. So please go visit DomesticShelters.org to access this free resource. And whoever usually gets a hold of me looking for resources and like, can you help me you know, dig up some things? My go-to place is DomesticShelters.org. And they're wonderful people over there, and you're in good hands when you go to DomesticShelters.org. They're a wonderful organization, so thank you uh, to them for existing. And everyone, if you need help, go to DomesticShelters.org. And I guess before we start our show today, we also want to say that you know uh, this show... The groups, our support services are paid for on a shoestring budget. So if you think 
what we offer on this podcast is valuable, please consider donating to our cause as it helps us grow our support services and reach a larger audience. Sponsoring an episode of this podcast is a way to make a really big difference, and you'll be helping thousands of survivors by doing so. Unfortunately, this week, we do not have an actual sponsor, so I just want to give a shout out to uh, Ryan from last week, from, from JJ from the week before, to Fern from the week before that for sponsoring the show. A big thanks to them, and hopefully we will have a sponsor next week, and that is it for that. We're about to start this show, and this episode with Valentina is a pretty epic story. It's terrible what happened to her. This show, you live her life with her. You really, really do. And she went through a lot. There's a lot going on in this story. It starts off with being shunned from a Jehovah Witness community, from a faith-based community, and then falling into a relationship. And that what I mean, she really had no chance. And, you know, if you have, if you don't have a Kleenex beside you, by the end of this show, you know, bring it out because you are, this is an emotional episode and you will learn so much for those people who are still in the relationships, who are, don't think they have a way out, that are in financial abusive situations, might be single moms and not working or working, uh, you know, are trying to squirrel money away. This is a must-listen episode all the way to the end. It's inspirational. Uh, you know, the resilience shown here by Valentina is second to none. And she's a beacon of hope. So, uh, you know, from the bottom of my heart, thank you to Valentina for being part of this. And now without further ado, here is my episode with Valentina. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Valentina. How are you? Fantastic. Well, Valentina, today we're going to discuss your toxic relationship, your abusive relationship. I'm sorry that you're here today, but I know you're going to help a lot of people. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here. And now, without further ado, Valentina, the floor is now yours. Thanks. Awesome. So um, the first thing I kind of wanted to start with was just, um, you know, my life before I got involved with a narcissist. Um, So I was born and raised as a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, My parents were converted when I was like three or four years old. Uh, Somebody actually came and knocked on their door, the cliche, and um, they uh, started studying with the Jehovah's Witnesses. And about two years after that, They were baptized, and, uh, you know, needless to say, it's for anyone who knows who Jehovah's Witnesses are, the um, culture is very different than what would be considered normal. And I found myself in a very uh, strict and, uh, let's say... I'd, let's just say I had no voice. I had no voice. You can't really have an opinion uh, when you're in a a religion that's that close-knit. You can't uh, really associate with anybody outside of Jehovah's Witnesses. You're very sheltered. And 
you only hang out with Jehovah's Witnesses, you only date Jehovah's Witnesses, and everything that goes along with that. So I found myself to be, or to wind up having to be very submissive, having to be very quiet, and not really having a voice, which at a young age basically taught me that I didn't matter. My voice didn't matter. My thoughts didn't matter. My opinions didn't matter. And anything that's going on in my head doesn't need to be said out loud because it's just silly. So that probably lasted uh, until I was maybe 17. And then just like any other child, you know, went through a rebellious stage, but my rebellious stage, looking back now, wasn't even that big of a deal. But in the world of Jehovah's Witnesses, it was a big deal. I didn't do drugs. I've never done a drug. I've never smoked cigarettes. But I liked boys. I liked guys. And so I found myself dating. And I found myself dating uh, individuals who were not Jehovah's Witnesses, which was not looked upon as being good because you're only supposed to date Jehovah's Witnesses. So uh, within that organization, you're basically told uh, there's, there's something called being disfellowshipped, which means if you do anything that you're not supposed to do, meaning celebrating the holidays, smoking, doing drugs, having sex before marriage, kissing, holding hands, uh, you're brought into what they call the back room or the blue room where you have to confess your sins and a panel of older men, three men, um, have to discuss your failing or your sin and give you a consequence of you know, losing privileges, of getting disfellowshipped, being disassociated. There's different levels. So when I was 19, um, I had already had sex. I had already done several sexual things, and I was feeling guilty. They were constantly talking at the podium about, you know, being sinful and not being blood guilty and dying in Armageddon if you don't do things correctly. So I wound up telling to myself, I got disfellowshipped and I was disfellowshipped for six months and got brought back into the association. And then soon after that, I got pregnant. Now, when you get pregnant, which means you had sex again, obviously I got disfellowshipped again. My parents kicked me out of my house. Uh, I was disfellowshipped again. And I kind of wore a badge of being unworthy, being sinful, being dirty, being gross, and God not loving me. Um, because I was kicked out of my house, I wound up living with my boyfriend, you know, the father. And uh, the church was hounding me to not... Uh, live with him because of, of obvious reasons. So we, uh, I had to make a decision. I had to make a decision to either marry my son's father or to uh, leave him, to break up with him. And I was trying, trying so desperately to get back into the religion. I was trying so desperately to get my relationship back with my parents. 
that I just on a whim made a decision to leave him. And I broke up with him. He moved out and he was so angry with me that he actually skipped town. He just left. So I was left by myself as a sinner uh, with no contact with my parents, no contact with my brothers or sisters, no contact with my religion um, and no money. I was working a menial job, probably making $10 an hour, trying to pay rent, do daycare, phone, car, gas, groceries. And I was desperate. I was so desperate. I was getting eviction notices on my apartment door and my car was getting repoed. And I was in a complete state of, uh, of hopelessness and loneliness and frustration and and felt like killing myself all the time. So soon after that, within a few months, I met this guy. Um, he worked sort of in the same industry that I worked in and he was successful and he had a great smile and he um he liked me even though I was sinful even though I was dirty even though I was a single mom even though I couldn't pay my bills he he wanted to be with me and he wanted to spend time with me and he wanted to take me out to dinner and he wanted to, um, you know, make me feel beautiful. And I thought that God was guiding me to a new place, to a good place. and. I was happy. I was really happy. And uh, that happiness lasted probably, I don't know, four months. And I started to realize that this guy um, had a temper and he had very little patience, but he loved me. And he was willing to give me money here and there. And he was willing to listen to all my woes of the issues I was dealing with with my family, the issues I was dealing with with my religion, my child. And he was a listening ear. He he um, seemed to care. So right here... You are coming from a broken life, let's yeah. say, yep. and you you don't have a voice, and yep. you don't feel good enough, and yep. you feel like God doesn't really love you. You uh, have everyone who you've loved or was important in your life is, is gone and they, yep. and they've, they've abandoned you. Yep. And here is uh, this person who finds a very vulnerable person 
which is you uh, with a child mm-hmm. with uh, just struggling in every single way and you're and someone's paying attention to you and listening to you yep. and just being listened to for you is massive yeah and at this point you're just gonna go with it because right now this is the greatest thing that's probably ever happened to you and it's probably a miracle to you yeah yeah 100 percent. i um was definitely you know looking back obviously um there was thousand red flags but uh, because he was giving me attention because he was literally the only person in my life that was paying attention to me. Um, I ignored all of the signs. I ignored the yelling. I ignored the tantrums. I ignored the short fuses. And I I tried to make it work. I uh, was quiet, you know, which was something I was really good at. So that... Um, I wouldn't aggravate him or irritate him. I didn't voice an opinion um, during certain situations because I was already used to that. And uh, I realized or knew that if he, if I did voice an opinion and then he took my opinion and my opinion was used, if that opinion went wrong, it was full on rage of, you don't know what you're talking about. I don't know why I took your advice. I don't know why you're even giving advice. It was the dumbest, you know, thing I've ever heard anyone talk, to, you know, say out loud. Um, you're obviously uneducated. I don't even know why I'm listening to you. You were a deadbeat. You're, um, the one thing that he used to use against me a lot was I'm Hispanic, my culture. I'm half Spaniard, half Mexican. And even though I'm fourth generation, I'm completely Americanized. I don't even know a lick of Spanish. I grew up in a very Americanized, middle-class home. Uh, He used to use that against me all the time. And in Chicago is where we were at. Um, There's there's Hispanics everywhere. That's just like the culture down there. There's Mexican places everywhere, the best Mexican food you could possibly imagine. And, uh, but... They're a uh, a culture that's looked down upon, you know, in that area. Everyone knows that. So he used to say that to me. He used to call me a dirty Mexican, a ungrateful Mexican, um, a ghetto Mexican, poor Mexican, in order to degrade me uh, whenever situations would come up, which just hit, you know, hit me hard. Uh, so anyways, uh, this went on for probably about a year. And I was barely paying my rent, barely making ends meet. And so he offered me to move in with him. Um, My lease was coming up and he's like, why don't you just move in with me? You can take care of the house. Uh, You won't have to pay rent. I'll take care of all the, you know, your living and your utilities. You pay all your other stuff. And... Uh, all you have to do to pay, you know, pay me back is just take care of the house, do laundry, clean, cook, whatever. So I was like, great, this is awesome. This is a fantastic idea. I couldn't even believe this was happening to me. I was so excited. So I moved in. And when I was moving in, it was made very clear to me very early on that he didn't want very much of my stuff in his house. 
So I got rid of literally everything except for my clothes. Um, I sold beds, furniture, lamps, picture frames. I got rid of toys from my son. Uh, he did not want a whole lot of all of our stuff in his house. So literally my son came with probably two bins of, of toys and clothes. And I came with my clothes and like toiletries. That was it. Everything else was either thrown in the trash or gotten rid of. He made it very clear in a very nonchalant, passive aggressive way, not forward, uh, that he did not want all of our quote unquote junk in his house. And how old are you here? And how old is your son? So I am 22. Okay. And my son is probably one. So about a year into that, and, and it was a turmoil the whole time. I mean, I can I can go into crazy detail about just the insanity. Um, alcohol, you know, as I mentioned before we started speaking, I'm sober. The reason I'm sober is because one of the tactics he used from day one of meeting him is he would get me wasted. So first thing that would happen when I would go to his house is he'd have uh, a rum and Coke poured for me immediately. And not just like a normal glass of rum and Coke on the rocks in like a normal glass you get at a bar. He would pour a massive, like big gulp cup full of rum and Coke to just get me basically plastered. And what he would do now looking back is uh, this is how he would manipulate me sexually in order to take advantage of me. Now, obviously, when you first, not obviously, but for me, when you first, when I first start seeing somebody, you want to, I want to, wanted to uh, woo him. You know, I wanted to please him. I wanted to do all the things sexually that he wanted to do. And on top of that, being manipulated with alcohol and not being in my right mind, I wound up doing a lot of things, plenty of things sexually that I would never, had never done and would never have normally done, but under the influence felt like it was fine to do. So, you know, soon after that, probably around two or three years in, I started to realize that, you know, because maybe I wasn't all the way drinking or wasn't all the way drunk and he would get mad at me if I didn't want to do the things sexually that he wanted to do. And I started to realize that this had a huge influence on him being able to take advantage of me. So I just stopped cold turkey, which was, you know, a huge issue throughout our, our entire relationship because I had already, I guess you could say, like wet his palate as far as like what I would do sexually so he used that against me a lot throughout our relationship. Well, when we first started dating, you tricked me. When you when we first started dating, you know, you made it seem like you were this, you know, very sexual person. And now you're not. What's wrong with you? You tricked me. You lied to me. You manipulated me. When in essence, it was just the alcohol. I was so numb to feeling um, that I would allow him to do things that I would never have normally allowed him to do. But I just couldn't feel, you know, my 
my body to know that those things hurt or those things didn't feel comfortable. So I was forced throughout our entire relationship um, to, to continue to do those things because if I didn't, you know, he would accuse me of being a liar. He would accuse me of being manipulative or, you know, a slut or a whore or whatever it was, or accuse me of sleeping with other people because if I wasn't having sex with him, then I must be having sex with somebody else. Because when we were first together, I was very sexual and we were having sex every single day. So, you know, if you're doing that in the beginning, then I'm assuming you're going to do that for the duration of our entire relationship. And if I wasn't, then I must be cheating on him. Uh, so anyways, a year, a year after I start I start living with him. He convinces me to quit his job, to quit my job. And he did that over the duration of probably six months, you know, by saying, hey, come work for me. We'll become a power couple. We'll become super wealthy. We'll, we'll, we'll retire by the time we're 50 and we'll be able to travel the world and we'll be able to buy a yacht and we'll be able to buy houses in, you know, three different areas. And I totally bought into it. I totally bought into it. Um, his company was already doing fairly well. Um, you know, he lived in a little townhouse. He did nice, nice cars. He had two cars, nice townhouse. He had an office. And he, you know, for a 22-year-old, sinful, unworthy, um, you know, car-getting repoed girl, I just basically won the lottery. So I quit my job. I quit my job. And unfortunately, I quit my job before asking him how much he was going to pay me. So I started working in his office, like on a Monday, and uh, no, no word of pay came up for week one and continued to work in his office 10, 12 hours a day for week two. And no conversation about pay came up. And me being submissive, me having no voice, me not having an opinion, hating conflict, hating questioning, um, basically just kept working for free until I literally had no money left in my account and I couldn't pay like my phone bill, for instance. So probably like week three, I finally was like, hey, um, super uncomfortable for me, you know, and he knew that, obviously, looking back. Um, hey, we, you know, we haven't talked about money. You know, what are you, what are you thinking? Super awkward for me, super uncomfortable. And he decides to pay me $250 a week. And his logic on that is you're not paying rent. You're not paying utilities. So, you know, basically a thousand dollars a month or whatever should be able to cover your car, your phone, child care food, laundry, you know, whatever you have to do. I totally disagreed. However, being who I was, I didn't flinch. I was more than half. Fine. That's great. Awesome. Fantastic. So now I'm working literally way more than eight hours. This isn't like he worked me to the bone. So he probably started me off at like 10 hours and I'm a giving person. You know, I'm a hardworking Mexican and super loyal. So I, you know, I got to the office at, you know, seven in the morning, dropped my son off at daycare at six, got to the office at seven, you know, and picked my, my child up at seven. So I was basically working, you know, 10 hour days. 
And I uh, was also doing all the housework too. So I had to cook, clean, you know, take care of everything at the house and take care of everything at work. So it's basically turned into a slave within two years. <laughs> and uh, he was a total perfectionist, total OCD. And so anything, any single thing that was out of place would elicit a rage beyond rage, just absolute insanity. Um, two crazy examples that I could give was, you know, leaving a glass in the kitchen sink that I had drank water out of. So I had just taken the glass that had water in it and I placed it in the sink. And, you know, whenever he happened to pass the sink or something, took the glass and uh, smashed it against the wall, yelling at me that I was a uh, dirty pig ghetto Mexican who didn't know how to keep a house clean. Then when I didn't rush over, because at this point it was probably, when this thing happened, it was probably like maybe three years in, I was already realizing the ridiculousness of his rage. And I didn't go over to clean the glass. And the fact that I didn't rush over, because that's, you know, he trained me to rush over. Whenever anything would happen, I would have to rush and I'd have to fix the things that happened. And this one particular time, I did not even get up to go sweep up the glass. And the amount of verbal vomit that came out of his mouth set the bar for our relationship at a brand new level that would lead me to wanting to drive off bridges daily. It was insane. Needless to say, I wound up getting up and cleaning up the glass that he broke. So, um, so you're, you're three years in here. Yeah. And you are essentially his slave. Yeah. Your child is uh, at daycare. Yeah. A lot of the day. Yeah. Are, are you able to make any friends or no. n so you're not even able to have conversations with the other moms that are at no. the daycare? None. Zero. So you he are, you are truly, truly alone in this yeah. world. Like there's, yeah. you have no one, not a yeah. soul to even go to. Yeah. And whenever he, if we were not, cause we work together. So we were with each other all the time, but if I wasn't with him to let's say pick up my son or go to the grocery store, he would probably call me for real every five to 10 minutes with just something stupid. Like where's the stapler or where did you put my shoes or why the F isn't there any clean underwear in my drawer just to be able to call me to make sure that I'm not involved in talking to anybody or conversing or creating any sort of relationship. Um, even with the gym was like a huge thing for him, uh, you know, constant calling during the gym to make sure that I was at the gym. I had to take pictures of my screen and he wouldn't do it like, 
hey, take pictures of the screen so I know you're at the gym. He would just be like, hey, shoot me a picture of this. You know, uh, what are you doing? I'm on the treadmill. Shoot me a picture so I can see how good you're doing. Stuff like that. But I knew what he was doing. You know, I knew because if I ever, if I ever decided that I wasn't going to, because because you start to lose control of your life and you you don't you don't even have you don't have like a a you're not even real you're not like even a real person so trying to like keep something for myself like I'm doing this for myself I don't have to show anybody that I'm doing this him feeling that push and pull would be a I'm coming to the gym right now. I'm going to come to the gym right now. And he would do that. He would show up at the library. He'd show up at the gym. He'd show up at the parking lot at the grocery store. If I didn't do text, picture, show receipts of the things that I was doing, it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. And in year three here, are there any good times anymore? Oh, 100%. 100%. Because... Uh, first of all, I was working my ass off. Business was going so good. It, him inviting me to work with him was by far the greatest thing that has ever happened to him up to this point. Like he went from making hundreds of thousands to millions with me by his side. Um, so yeah, the you know he he he. Every weekend was dinner. Every weekend was get dressed up, order whatever you want. Um, comedy clubs, movies, theater. You look beautiful. You look sexy. You're a Barbie doll. I love everything about you. And then that was just Saturday. So I, you know, you'd go through that high of like, oh, everything's great. And then come Sunday into Monday, you know, all, you know, shit would just hit the roof again. So it was a total love bomb roller coaster fest, the entire relationship. And when these things are really good, uh, are you thinking to yourself at, at those points, like, oh, I made the right decision. This is the right decision. What, oh, what, yes. would, what was, what would my life be like without this guy? Yes, a hundred percent. And even so much so, you know, the, the gaslighting as far as, in the opposite direction of not feeling like I was correct. Like the bad times really aren't that bad. What am I even, why am I sitting on the bathroom floor crying every other day? This is great. This is fantastic. I will never have money issues. I will never have financial struggles. I will, my son will be taken care of. He'll be able to go to college. Um, You know, these were all, you know, things that were constantly thrown in my face in a good way to prove to myself that the relationship I was in was good for me and good for us and good for my son. And I need to stop being so emotional and I need to stop being so dramatic and I need to stop, you know, I need to work harder and do more because this is good. Any girl would be, and he used to tell me this, any girl would die to be in my situation, to have the wealth, to have the business knowledge, to be able to work with her spouse uh, side by side. And, um, and, and, and 
thinking to myself that I'm insane for thinking anything other than that. You are coming from such a broken place that this, what he's saying is 100% believable. That, yeah. So are there other things that he's implanting in you that give you uh, issues that you didn't have before? Um, oh, dude, I struggle with so much PTSD and triggers. It's insane. Uh, I do want to say, though, that, you know, up to this point in the story, you know, he's obviously taken away all of my possessions besides my clothes. He's taken away all of my, you know, he's taken away my home, uh, my job. Now, needless to say, you know, I say he took it away, but I willingly gave him all of this power because of the way and the means in which he did it. Um, you know, soon after that, like I said, I was making $250 a week. Uh, I started to complain after a while of living. I was still living paycheck to paycheck. I was, you know, still driving my old Toyota Camry at this point, but I was living in a, in a beautiful place, you know, fully modernized. Um, and, I started to complain about not having enough money. And instead of him saying, here's a raise, I'll give you, you know, a little more money for all of the hard work you've done over the last, up to this point, four years or wherever we're at in the story. He says to me, well, what's the bill that you need to pay right now? What bill can't you pay? And I said, my phone bill, I can't pay my phone bill. And he goes, well, how about this? Close down your phone and open a phone under my plan and I will pay your phone for you. So again, me being like at that point, wow, this is awesome. This is so cool. Not realizing because of being naive that this was him again, controlling even more of my life. And, uh, you know, soon after that, I wound, I wound up crashing my car. I totaled my Toyota Camry two months after completely paying it off. So I was actually excited up to that point because that was going to be an extra $300 in my pocket, but, um, crashed my car, totaled it and, you know, was going to go out and buy a new car. And he insisted on me not buying a new car. Uh, so he wound up buying me a car in his name and paying me the same amount of money. So now I have no car. I have uh, nothing in my name. So basically I'm invisible to the government, invisible to everything, you know, social security. I'm a 1099. I'm not even a paid um, employee. I'm a contractor. He kept me as a contractor the entire time. And uh, no phone, <laughs> no job, no house. I, I have nothing. I have absolutely zero, no friends. And also up to this point, he, we had moved. So from Chicago, we were in Chicago for probably about six years. Um, anytime I started to make friends, acquaintances, asked to hang out more than like two or three times with friends, all of a sudden we would move. So after about six years living in Chicago, we moved to Ohio. He actually had me set up in an extended stay in Columbus, Ohio for a year. I lived in a hotel room for a year with my son and opened up a new office, hired new employees. After a year there, we moved to Pennsylvania 
and um, bought a house, opened up two offices there with him. What, so type, of, what have, type of business is this? So, um, so we worked with newspapers. Ooh, I've never said that out loud. We, we worked with newspapers. So we would hire and train door-to-door sales reps. So I'm a Jehovah's Witness, remember? So I went door-to-door my whole life. So, so we did door-to-door. I hired, trained, and came up with the whole sales tactic, material, everything for salespeople. And I'd hire and train young ones to go out and sell newspapers door-to-door so we had crews running in Chicago, crews running in Ohio, and then crews running in Pennsylvania. And then soon after Pennsylvania, about four or five years into it, moved to Florida, which is where I am now. We got three newspapers down here out of one office and started growing rapidly down here in Florida. And so then I was running you know, all these offices for him. At this point in our relationship, he's not even coming into the office anymore. So I'm literally working 15-hour days, keeping up a house, and uh, I'm the contact for every single rep, every single manager, every single director of every newspaper. I'm the direct contact. No one ever calls him, sees him, says anything to him. And he comes into the office maybe two times a week and basically just yells at me, belittles me, tells me I'm doing everything wrong. I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. He would have done it better if he would have known. I should have told him. And uh, and I'm at my wit's end at this point. You know, this is probably ten, year 10. Okay. So, so, you know, within this time, let's kind of look back it up a little here. Sure. You know, are, do you ever – actually, I'm going to do another question first. What is his relationship like with your son during okay. the beginning and I guess, you know, you know, when he's like three or four years old, five, is he involved? How, how does it uh, evolve or devolve? Great, great question. So in the beginning, he hung out with him a lot, um, you know, probably, you know, four times a week at least during dinner or what have you, weekends, uh, go to the park. You know, we'd go to concerts, little like, you know, Hot Wheel concerts or Disney on Ice stuff. But he was actually really good to my son. We, I never had an issue with him being rude or mean or disrespectful towards my son. And he also very rarely, with my son in the vicinity of us, ever really hit into me. Now, when my son was sleeping at night, that's a whole nother story. And I'm sure my son does have times where he woke up and heard because a lot of our arguments were also at night where I would just have a complete breakdown from the, the, what happened during the day. And now he's asking for sex and I hate him because of everything he said, everything he did during the day. And now he's making me do these sexual things to him. And I would sometimes just have huge blowouts of just absolute, ridiculous like just like i'm dying dramatic meltdowns um that were loud i'd be screaming in the house i'm just dying just like in the corner dying um because of the just the the words 
the words that he would say to me, the manipulation he would do to me, and then it all folds into now do this for me sexually, and I want to stab him. I want to kill him. I want to put a knife through his eye um, and watch him bleed out. And, you know, that's a, a tough place to be. But uh, what happened with my son is, you know, obviously he went into school eventually. So I would try to get him in after school care as much as possible. Uh, however, it got to the point towards probably the last seven years I was with him where he wasn't at home. Um, my ex wasn't at home. He would stay out late either with the crew because door to door is at night. So the, the crews run from, you know, four till 10, basically four to nine. And they get back at the office till at 10. So he started kind of like saying he was going out, but he wasn't going out. He could have been with another girl. He could have been doing I don't know what he was doing. I never asked. I wasn't allowed to ask what he was doing. I never looked into what he was doing. I didn't care. Um, so uh, what I would do is if I knew he was going to be home, I would take my son, I would pick my son up and take him to the park, uh, take him out to eat until, you know, bedtime, eight o'clock. And then I would just tell him on the way home, hey, as soon as we get home, I want you to take a shower and go to bed. So, you know, as he started getting older, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, or whatever. I didn't want him being around my ex. So I would purposely keep him out. And I, you know, my ex called me so much that I would know if he was home or not. If I was with my son, you know, he would still call, but it wasn't as ridiculous. Um, so I, you know, tried to keep my son away from him as much as possible. There, there was one freak out. That was a huge turning point where my son was wearing soccer shoes. You know, soccer shoes have the, the cleats, but when they're young, they're like plastic cleats. It's not that big of a deal. And my son went back into the house to get, um, it was like three steps back into the house to get like a hat or something. And my ex totally lost it, slammed the door. It put this huge dent in the refrigerator and because there was like a refrigerator behind the door, it slammed it. So there was this huge like knob, doorknob thing into the refrigerator. And screamed at my son and told my son that he had to pay for a new doorknob because, um, you know, he walked on the wooden floor with soccer shoes on. And because of that, he got angry and smashed the doorknob. So now my son has to pay for the doorknob because he shouldn't have done that in the first place. And that was a huge turning point for me when... I saw that coming out and he was comfortable doing that with my son. Um, you know, that was a, a breaking point for me as far as keeping tallies on leaving. So before we get to that, I still kind of want to discuss your son for one second, which sure. is, you know, your son pretty much, this is the only man he ever has known as being a father figure. So yeah. it, does he look at him like this is my dad? No. Okay. And he never did. Nope. He never even, um, he never even grieved it. He didn't have any grief because I didn't, the love, as you know, the love that narcissists show isn't love. So there was no hugging. There was no cuddling. There was no kissing. There was no touching. There was, there was none of that. Uh, 
the only thing my ex did was just take him places every once in a while, but he was fully consumed in, in himself. So he didn't, he never asked how we were. He didn't say like, Hey, how was school? Do you have any girlfriends? You know, what's what? Blah, blah, blah. He only talked about himself. So my son never really opened up to him. They never had any like father son conversations. Like let's do, you know, baseball together and talk about chicks. Uh, there, he only talked about himself, what he was interested in, bikes, cars, business, money, him, 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 him. So there was no bonding really. He, my son didn't give anything to him emotionally or mentally for there to be like a pull really. So I guess let's go backwards here to, um, you know, we were, I guess in the middle of your relationship um, you know, are, are things different in the middle? How are things kind of going for you? You know, once you're, you know, I guess officially settled in, um, the final city you would, you would be in, um, Mm -hmm. you know, how are things kind of going there? Or is it just very much the same? Well, it's very much the same. Um, you know, one of the things that I did leave out is I, I actually left him twice in the middle of this. Okay. So probably around year four, I, um, he had accused me of cheating. He was out of town, accused me of cheating and because I wasn't answering my phone and I just had had it at, to that point, he had accused me of cheating so many times up to that point. And so I called my parents in like a a freaking anxiety attack and said I had to get out of here. Packed all my stuff, which I had nothing. So I was just basically packed my clothes. And my parents drove from North Carolina to Chicago with their truck and a trailer, threw all my stuff, and drove me back to North Carolina. What happened was um, he obviously, you know, love bombed me like crazy, you know, hoovered like crazy, called me constantly, said he was sorry, apologized. He sent chocolates, teddy bears. Uh, My parents' entire house was filled with roses. Like every day he would send a dozen roses and like the expensive kinds, you know, the ones that are like $180 for 12 roses. And um, I viewed that as him being sorry, being sorry. And so probably about a month, maybe went by. Now he's making $250 a week. I asked for a raise at that point. So he paid me, you know, $300 a week. He gave me like a little raise and I went back and, uh, probably around five years after that, maybe, um, left again. I would, we were living in Pittsburgh at that time. So I had moved from Chicago to Ohio to Pittsburgh and, um, I left again packed up all my stuff in my own car, moved across country, back to Chicago to move in with my best friends. And again, same thing, you know, came back to Chicago, you know, found out where she lived. You know, he got, he had my phone still, remember? So I was stupid, you know, still kind of wanting him back, playing games, me doing my own codependent you know, manipulation on my end. You know, I also did that. You know, codependents are known for being just as manipulative as narcissists. And, um, you know, me playing my own games of, you know, whatever that was. 
and trying to be coy and trying to be sexy and trying to make him miss me. And, um, and it worked, you know, probably six months after that, I moved back in with him. So, so and got another raise, by the way, I got another raise after that. So along the way here, you did uh, manage to have some sort of relationship with your parents again, and you were able yes. to at least branch out a little and make a friend? Well, my best friend, my friend that I moved in with was my best friend from before I even met this guy. Okay. So, you know, she, you know, we still kept in contact. I mean, we still talked. Um, but it was very much like if you, if you were to ask her, she would get so mad at me because he would call, like I said, every 10 minutes. So we would be on the, her and I would be on the phone. He would call. I'd pick up and I, you know, he'd make the conversation super long because he's trying to break up whatever's going on. And I'd be like, I'm on the phone with my girl and, um, you know, blah, 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 blah. He'd hang up. I'd get back on the phone with her and he'd call again five minutes later. And so she gets so irritated with me, you know, how, you know, what the heck, you know, they can't even have a conversation. This is bull crap. He's being manipulative. He's being abusive. And I, of course, was like, you know, he's just making sure I'm okay. He's just, you know, he's mad at this or he can't find this or always, you know, always an excuse. But, you know, her and I could never have any more than maybe a 15, 20 minute conversation because he'd interrupt twice during it and she'd just get irritated and wind up hanging up. And so during that time, you know, you hear the word manipulation, you kind of understand what's going on. You've gone through this for at certain point, 10 years. Yeah. Uh, have you gone to see a therapist? Do you uh, start researching any of this stuff like on the internet of what's going on? Yeah. So uh, I found out about narcissism eight years in. Um, I was in the bathroom, on the floor, in the dark, bawling my eyes out, just super dramatically, all dramatic, like, and sniffling and crying and yelling and bawling and just tears and snot just coming off of my face, just having a complete breakdown, as I did weekly, multiple times a week. And, of course, my ex is doing nothing. He's just, like, watching TV in the other room. And I, uh, I'm on the floor and I have my phone with me and I Google, why is my boyfriend bullying me? And that Google search is what changed the trajectory of my entire life. So found out about the word narcissism and just went down an entire rabbit hole of this is not even my fault. This is not even me. This is not even any of this is my, none of this is my fault. This is all him. He's the one that has this dysfunction mentally and um, had a complete awakening of who I was, who he was, my code, you know, our codependency, uh, my empathy, you know, empathy, and instead of me falling into a woe is me type of I'm with a narcissist, I can't believe I'm with a narcissist and I, I'm an idiot for being a narcissist, what I actually did is I turned it into how can I 
get what I want by manipulating him in the opposite way. And I became really, really good at feeding his ego, at playing his game in the opposite direction in order to move ahead, in order for me to move ahead. And that's, you know, that's when the entire tables turned. He didn't know it was turning, but it was turning. And I, go ahead. So if you, if he was to rage, how did you figure out how to defuse that situation? Uh, (laughs) Um, So there was two, two ways. Uh, The first way that I started to do was, I call it the M&M tactic. So I don't know if you remember the movie Eight Mile. Of course. Where he like totally, uh, they start doing the battle where with him and the the African-American guy and he, you know, they're like ripping on each other. And then Eminem just starts ripping on himself. So the other guy had nothing to say. So what I started doing is when he would go into these rages of, you know, my ex very rarely came out and was just like, you're an idiot. You're so dumb. What he would do is, Let's say I put I, I put a bowl of cherries on the counter and forgot to put it in the refrigerator. And he'd be like, only an idiot would leave cherries on the counter. Only a dumbass. My three-year-old sister knows better than to leave cherries on the counter. So he wouldn't ever say, you're an idiot. He would just say, whoever did what I did was an idiot. So then when I would say, stop calling me an idiot, he'd be like, I didn't call you an idiot. Are you serious right now? Why are you telling me that? So then I'm I'm like incredibly dumb because not only did I leave the cherry, so he's insinuating, but I'm an idiot. But then I'm like a liar and an idiot because... Like, he didn't actually say that. He didn't actually call me an idiot. Do you know what I mean? It was, like, so many layers of manipulation. It was insane. So what was I, where was I going with this? I don't even remember. Uh, you were trying to tell the story of how you would defuse a situation of rage. Oh, yeah. So what I started doing is as soon as it would start, um, I would just backdoor him because I already knew what he was going to say. He said all this. He said all the same stuff every single time for years. So I would then say, you know, he'd start out by saying, "Who left the cherries on the freaking counter?" And I'd be like, "I don't know, but he must be an idiot." <laughs> stuff like that in order to, to like. So then he had nothing to say, you know. So. You know, if he started going down this incredible, ridiculous, like he would, you know, I don't really, I like feel uncomfortable saying the things that he would say to me, but, you know, I would go down and I would say horrible things about myself, horrible things about myself, but they were things that I was used to him saying. So I'd be like, yeah, you know, she would do this and she would be that and she would, don't you have anything else? Don't you have any other ammunition 
um, to spew at me because I've already heard all of this. I already know I'm dirty. I already know I'm unorganized. I already know I'm a slut or a whore or a cheat or a thief or wherever it was going, you know, um, uh, a bitch, a cunt, a slut, whatever. And I'm like, I, I already know all this. You've already told me all of this for a decade, for literally a decade. I already know. What else? Do you have anything else that you can say to me? So once I I started not calling him names, I stopped calling him names. I Because that's what I used to do. I'd be like, you're a jerk. No, you're dumb. But that just bounces off of them because they have no feelings. So... So it doesn't matter. Like I could literally say the worst things to him and he could, he would literally be like, are you serious? I'm the greatest person. on the like, he would literally say that the greatest person on the face of this planet. You think I'm an idiot for real? Literally any girl would die to suck my, you know, blah, blah, blah. So nothing I would say to him would hurt him. But once I started knocking myself and started leaving him alone, leaving him alone, that would kill the conversation because there was nothing more for him to say. So then he's like racking his brain of like, holy crap, what uh, uh, a tongue tied, not knowing what else to say. Cause there was, I said all of the things. Um, so that was the tactic one that I would do. I call it the M&M tactic. And just, and, just uh, for everyone, the actor you were thinking of was Mackay Pfeiffer. Okay. There you go. There you go. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and then the second one I would do was just gray raw, which everyone knows that, you know, I would just be silent. I wouldn't say anything. So he would be going on a full on rage and I would stand there and listen or on the phone and listen. And I would just say nothing, you know, so he would just be spewing off. And what they do is they keep spewing until you break. So they, he would just continue to, hit, 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 hit. And then my, in the past, he'd hit once, twice, three times, and I'd break. You know, he then I, and I got stronger, so then he'd hit three, four, five times, and then I'd break. And then towards, you know, once I started to realize what was going on, realize manipulation, I knew I was dealing with a narcissist, I started to realize that there are basically three, four-year-olds throwing tantrums. And if they see you break, then they know that's your breaking point. So I just used the same tactic I used with my son. So when my son would ask for a candy bar and I'd say no, and then he'd ask for a candy bar and I'd say no again, he asked for a candy bar, I'd say no again. Um, eventually he just stops asking for a candy bar. So. And well, you also uh, used, it's, it's, you, you were using the word hit. You were using the Muhammad Ali rope dope where you let the other person just punch, 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 which is what he did with George Foreman until okay. he was exhausted. And he had, nothing, he had nothing left. Yep. There you go. So, and, that, and that was it. And all I would do in my head is I would always tell myself that in my head, this is literally what I would say to myself. I would say, this is not real life. This is not my real life. This is not real. Nothing he's saying or doing is real because he would flip. So he would go into a full out rage and just like rip into me. Physically, emotionally, mentally, my work ethic, my background, my culture, anything he could he could rip on. And then literally an hour later, he'd be like, hey, do you want to go grab lunch? Like everything was totally fine. And so what I learned to do was say nothing, didn't don't alter my emotions, and then just know that it's not real. Because in an hour, 
he's literally going to ask me out for a hamburger. So there's no reason for me to do this whole roller coaster of crying, feeling sorry, victimized, yelling, screaming, losing control of myself, because literally in an hour, we're just going to go grab a hamburger together. So I would just sit while he's doing this, I would just, I would almost zone him out kind of like Charlie Brown, the, you know, wah, 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 wah. I'd zone it out. And I would just say to myself, this isn't real. This isn't real. This is not real life. This is not real. This is not real life. This is not real. This, until it was done. Cause he'd get tired. And then, um, we'd go get a hammer. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it didn't always work, obviously, you know, he many times would break me, but it got to the point where probably 70, 75% of the time I was able to completely gray rock him and, um, not say anything. You know, I would just tell myself, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Don't open your mouth. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. This is not real. And, you know, before you know it. And a lot of times I also learned to change the subject. So I'd wait till he's freaking out, freaking out, freaking out, freaking out, freaking out, you know, four, five, 10 minutes into it, whatever. I would be walking around the house or doing something else, or I'd be thinking in my brain and I would, I would pivot the conversation into something else. So, you know, something that I knew he would appreciate, something that I knew he would like. So I would turn it into, hey, did you know that we profited? Hey, I don't know if you know this, but did you know that we profited, you know, blah, 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 which would pique his interest. Wait, what? And that would pivot. Or, hey, did you know that the, you know, patio said that we ordered, they just emailed me. Like I look at my phone and be like, oh, they just emailed me and it's going to be here tomorrow. Do you want me to clear off the patio for you? And then it would pivot. So, you no, know, a that's, lot a, of- that's a really interesting strategy where you, you know, you change the subject, but you change the subject into something that is interesting to him. That's a positive yeah. thing uh, for him that benefits him or strokes his ego. Exactly. And that's what, you know, part of doing all of the research that I did, um, which that's what people do. They wind up figuring it out. Um, but, you know, I used it against him. So, you know, the, the knowledge that I learned... I used it to be able to manipulate him um, and to get what I want, basically. And uh, which at that point, you know, during a situation like that would be peace and quiet. And and it worked. My entire life revolved around trying to not get rage. And yeah, towards the end, I mean, that was the, I even told him that to his face. I'm like, I li- I'm like, I wake up every day. This is what I used to tell him. I wake up every day and my goal for the day, every day, it's not to take care of myself. It's not to take care of my son. It's not to make a ton of money. My goal every single day is to make sure is to get it so that you don't freak out on me for one entire day, just 24 hours, just 24 hours where you're not flying off the freaking handle like a lunatic that every day I wake up. So I do everything I can in all the areas with all of the things all day long, just trying to be two steps ahead of you so you don't freak out. And I, I eventually was telling him that to his face because that's literally all I was doing all day was just trying to put out all the fires before he found out about the fire. And that's maddening. It's absolutely 
exhausting to just constantly be looking at the room. Is there any glasses? Is there any bowls? Did anyone miss payroll? Did that person get paid right? Is this person going to call? Did that person call? Do I have to go to the office? Does a car need to be washed? Because he'd freak anything, anything that he, and, and obviously we live life. It's an imperfect life. So every day I could do every single thing absolutely perfect. We could have profited a ton of money and he would realize that the lines from the vacuum cleaner are going in the wrong direction on the floor and he would just have a complete heart attack, like a complete heart attack. So it just at, like, I can't even tell you how many times I would sweep and then re-sweep vacuum and then re-vacuum because I accidentally put one footprint or accidentally the dog you know, not accidentally the dog, but like the dog would like shed a little extra or like he'd um, scratch his back. The dog would scratch his back and then there'd be like a little pile of like six hairs on the floor. I'd have to like go back over the dog with a white, with like a wet cloth to get those six hairs off the floor because he would find anything. He would find it. You know, he'd see those six hairs and he'd be like, did you do anything all day? Did you clean any, what were you doing all day? Because of those six. And I'd be like, well, he just freaking, he just scratched his back. Yeah, sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then he, you know, he'd look specifically for something else. Well, what about that mark on the wall over there? You know, it would, and it would turn into a whole ridiculousness. At one point of your life, you were preventing things from a point of view of being uh, beaten down. And in this case, at this point, you are enlightened about what he is and are doing it maybe from a more of a place of power. Uh, you, you know what I mean? So I, I, guess, yeah, I, 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 I guess, you know, when, yes. when that place of power came yeah. in, did you feel like yeah. you were in charge or at least uh, yeah. more on equal footing here? Yes. To answer your question. A very similar answer, though. You know, I was still doing all of the same stuff, but yes, doing it in a mental and emotional place of power. So what the the way that I was mentally taking on my life once I found out what I was dealing with was doing my best to take on as much responsibility and being as perfect as I can. Because my plan was, you know, this happened over a duration of like a few years, obviously. It wasn't like I found out about narcissism and just came up with a plan. You know, this obviously, you know, evolved. But what it started to turn into was if I can get this guy to count on me enough, if I could be perfect enough, not in a, oh, my gosh, I have to be perfect in order for him to keep me. But in a way of like, I got to be freaking perfect so that this guy needs me is, was my mentality. In my mind here, it's like, you're making yourself so valuable Yes. that it's going to give you a bit of freedom. Yes. And once that door is open for that part of freedom, you can start figuring out an escape plan. Yep. And, you know, that's, that's the thing here. You've gotten yourself into this spot. You know how to manipulate it. And now I can, ha- I can see daylight from this point. Yep. And once you see daylight, things can happen. Yep. 
Exactly. So instead of taking on the situation with hate and with, I I hate him. I don't want to compliment him. I hate the way he looks. I hate the way he smells. I hate, I hate sex. I hate, instead of it, me being grossed out by like everything involving him, but I just have to be where I am because I have no money in my account. He's literally paying me enough to survive. I can't save anything. You know, I already ruined the whole, not ruined, but like my parents already saved me once. So I can't like ask them to save me again. You know, my one best friend already saved me once. I can't ask for her to save me again. I have nowhere to turn. Now I have to do this by myself. And um, so I started just feeding the crap out of his ego every single day. Oh, my God, you look so hot. Oh, my God, you look so good. Your ass looks phenomenal in those jeans. We'd go to the office and I'd be like, you know, so-and-so is here. I'd yell his name, um, you know, in the office, like, what's up? You know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he'd smile. He'd grin. His dimples would show. And, you know, after his speeches, I'd be the loudest one clapping. I'd be like, good job. That was so motivational. That was so good. And this slowly evolved. Obviously, I didn't just, like, go into the office one day and just started, like, spewing out ridiculousness. But I started to realize that the more that I fed his ego, the more that he would let me get away with time-wise, the more that he would be less rude to me, the more freedom he'd allow me to have. And, um, you know, I'd constantly, I, you know, with the whole sex thing, you know, I started initiating sex first instead of it me like hovering in the corner, hoping that he doesn't notice me. Um, I started, you know, oh, you know, and, and feeding into that, even though I hated it, Um, But doing it knowing that it was for long term, like I I had a plan set so that in the long run, I win. So this is the sacrifices I'm making. I'm having to bite my tongue during arguments. I'm having to tell him that he's right. I'm having to be less defensive. I'm having to tell him that he's awesome and amazing and fantastic. And I'm so grateful for him. And I used to write him cards. Like I have more cards written to him probably during the last three years of our relationship than I do during the like previous 10 because I just kept feeding the ego and he fed into it. He fed into it a hundred percent. He gave me, even though I already had a ton of responsibility, he gave me even more responsibility. It basically got to towards the last few years of our, our, of our relationship. He didn't even know the password to his own bank accounts. I had full access to every single thing in his life, everything. He didn't even know the passwords to his own um, stocks, bank accounts, emails, nothing. I had full access to everything, and I knew everything, and he knew zero. He knew absolutely nothing. So I guess at a certain point, do you start looking into, you know, if we divorce – Actually, you're not. Well, you're common law. I don't know what yeah, the laws we are. Like, yeah, the, yeah, I don't know what the laws are like there with common law. But are you are you looking into if this splits up? What am I entitled to? Um. Yes and no. So I would be lying if I said I didn't look into it. Um. I did look into it. Um. In Florida, 
it stated in one Google search that I did that there's no common law in Florida because it's so expensive. People just live with each other. Um, and I never did anything past that. Never contacted a lawyer. You know, now talking about it, since I've talked about it so much, obviously I've come across lawyers and just casual conversation and they're like, oh my gosh, you totally could have done something. However, because I was on his beneficiary, I mean, it was obvious that we weren't just roommates. I was on his bank accounts. I was on his, you know, he, you know, we were shared, but none of the money was mine. You know, it was his bank account. He put my name on it so that I could pull money in and out without having to bother him, basically, is why I was on it. It wasn't because the money was mine. It was because he didn't want to be bothered with a phone call. So, you know, whenever money needed to be shifted around. So, uh, so yes, I did look into it, but I didn't, I didn't actually look into, I was too scared. He's so, he's so mean, Brandon. He is such a vicious, vicious individual. I did not want to bother dealing with the ramifications of trying to do or get anything from him. Nothing. It would have been so hard on me mentally. I don't even think I could have handled it. And isn't it uh, quite amazing that you, once you were given that trust to do everything that he really has no interest in doing anything. He wants everyone to take care of, um, you know, his daily affairs. Yep. He can't even look at his stock portfolio. You have to do it for him. Yeah. So, you know, we're now here, you know, we've switched back and forth a lot, but we're, we're now here, you're in Florida at this point, and it's the, you know, final stages of, I guess, the last three years of your relationship. So what happens here? Uh, you know, for you to things to eventually break down and where does it go from there? Well, it's kind of funny because he's actually the one that triggered me. So, you know, during sales meetings, when he would come in, um, he would say to his guys a lot, you know, because obviously you're trying to get these guys to write more sales the more sales they make, the more money we make. So it's one of the things he used to say to them is whoever has all the money has all the power. Or whoever makes all the money makes all the rules. So this is one of the things that he used to say. He used to say that to me, you know, whenever I'd get a little, you know, power hungry or, you know, like say something that was like out of line according to his mindset, he would remind me, hey, whoever makes all the money makes all the rules. Do you have any money? How much money do you have? And I have no money. You know, I have no money in my account. Okay, well, exactly. So you don't make rules. Once you have money, then you can make rules. So him saying that in the office and then him like uh, punishing me or reprimanding me with those words kind of started to trigger me of, wait a minute. So if I have money, then I have power. I wonder if I have money, if I would actually have power. So I kind of started to like, play with that a little bit. You know, I started to realize that I was running an entire corporation. I started to realize that I knew real estate because at this point we had bought in 
you know, a house, uh, two houses in Chicago, you know, while we were out there, we had bought in two houses in Pittsburgh while we were out there. We had bought a house here in Florida, here. And I did all the work. I did all the emails, all the paperwork. All he did was show up for the signing. So I knew how, I knew how to do all the things. I knew how to open up corporations. I knew how to talk to directors. And so I started just kind of think to myself, wow, like I've done all of this by myself. And so that, that's where he failed. That's where he failed. If he, if he wouldn't have allowed me to have so much power, as much power as he gave me, I probably would still be with him. Um, but because he got lazy, because he trusted me, because of the way that I, you know, was in my own way manipulating the situation, he totally got screwed. And four years before I finally quit, I sat, I literally sat down. I still have it in my journal, in my notebook. I literally sat down and I wrote out how much money I needed to leave. And I broke it down in weeks, broke it down in days and realized how much money I needed per day in order to get out. And I uh, opened up an eBay account. I opened up a secret eBay account and I went to the bank, another bank, and I opened up a secret bank account. And I uh, started taking my son's clothing first uh, because I was planning on having another child. So I had saved his clothing, you know, up from when we first moved in until at that point. And I just started selling all of his clothes on eBay. And I started making $5 here and $7 there and $10 there and started making, started making some money and uh, secretly. And how long did it take you to accumulate everything you needed? And besides that, uh, the, the, the sun stuff where you, maybe doing things like buying something and then just, you know, we need this for the house and then buying it for the house and then immediately selling it? Uh, so first, no. So at first I was just selling my son's clothes. It took me about a year and I started getting confident. I started like feel powerful. I started to feel good. We own nice houses. I was driving at this point. He had bought me a car. I was driving a beautiful white BMW, fully loaded diesel M3 bullcrap, gorgeous car. I had a, um, we were engaged. We wound up getting engaged and, um, literally right before I left. And, uh, I, which that's a whole story too. I should probably tell, but I, I was still shopping at Goodwill. So I was still like, I was still shopping at like discount grocery stores and discount clothing stores because I couldn't, like I had no money. He wasn't paying me. He was paying me just enough to survive. So I was like, I had uh, accumulated a year later, $6,000. And I felt so rich, Brandon. Oh my God. I felt like a freaking millionaire because I had lived so long paycheck to paycheck. Like, you know, I was in debt. I hurt my credit because, you know, living on 200, $300, you know, he upped it a couple times, um, of money. I was, uh, I went into debt all the time where I would have to pay off my, you know, use my credit cards. I didn't have enough cash 
Then I didn't have enough cash to pay off my credit card. So then I wouldn't pay my credit card. So I was living in this beautiful house with this beautiful car, with this huge ring on my finger, running a, a, a company. And my credit was 500 and I had zero money in my bank account. It was like insane. So when I got this $1,000, oh my gosh, I felt like a queen. I felt so freaking powerful. So one day I'm at the kitchen table. I have my bank account open. I'm just like salivating over my bank account. I'm like, this is just, I am brilliant. This is what I'm telling myself. I am just, I am so freaking smart. I can't even believe I've done this. So my fiance at the time walks in, my ex, and um, stupidly, I kept it open for like, a little bit longer than I should have. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. I should, like, I don't, like, I don't know what I thought if he'd be like, wow, good job. Wow, great job saving money. I don't know what I was expecting, but I wanted to, like, low-key brag. I wanted to low-key be like, look what I did. Like, I also did something here. And it was the, one of the dumbest things I've ever done. So he saw the money, he freaking freaked out through the computer. It didn't break. Um, uh, why do you have money? How do you have money? You're greedy. Uh, you're unloyal. You, you're not paying bills. You're not paying rent. You're not paying utilities. How dare you have money saved up? Why are you not putting some of that money towards bills? Why are you not putting some of that money towards rent? And it, It hit me, it hit me at that point. I had figured, I had thought, I had thought, but it hit me at that point that he was paying me what he was paying me on purpose because he wanted me to have no money. Because in my head, I was like, well, it makes sense. You know, like he is paying rent. He is paying utilities. That's why he's paying me so little. Because obviously I'm working my ass off. And I'm wanting to bring it up. I wanted to be like, what the hell? Why am I still making this much money even though we're now, like at this point, we're literally millions is coming up. Millions is coming in. And um, I'm, you know, but I'm like, well, it makes sense. Well, you know, I don't really need it. And if I needed money, he would let me borrow it. And he gives me a 50 every once in a while to get a massage, whatever. But at that point, when he flipped out over $6,000, which is like nothing at that point, like, to like the business, six thousand dollars is zero money. Um, it I realized that he was purposely keeping me poor, and what he did is he said, um, "Since you have so much money, you're not allowed to cut yourself a check for the next six months. Don't take any money from the business for six months because obviously you have enough money to live on." So he freaking killed it. He killed it. So obviously, you know, I was still selling, but that $6,000 went out, you know, that went out. So I had no money. So I lost all that money. And uh, he started paying me again six months later. And I uh, was still making my side money through eBay. And at that point... It wasn't going fast enough. At that point, I was mad. I was irritated. I was still doing all the same stuff. But in my heart, I was like, this is bullshit. So I doubled up. I doubled up. 
And I started doing exactly what you said. I started going to thrift stores and I started flipping merchandise. And I also started um, like creating uh, like clothing kind of jackets. I like add on, like I'd buy a $5 jacket at Goodwill and a 50 cent dress. And I take the dress and cut it apart and make the, the jacket like frilly. And I'd sell it on eBay for like $50. So instead of just selling clothes for like $5 or $10, yeah, I would then start creating things that would sell for a lot more because they were individualized. And um, started doubling, basically doubling up on my money. And, uh, you know, he didn't ask any questions. He just thought I was making the clothes for myself because I would wear them sometimes. I would wear the clothes. And he just thought that that was something I was doing at home to pass the time, you know, on my spare time. Instead of watching TV, I would make clothes. And he was fine with that. He didn't know anything. He knew nothing of what I was doing. So um, to make the story a little more dramatic, I wound up saving again uh, a year. I saved uh, $15,000, believe it or not selling on eBay and offer up. I would also sell an offer up. And I, uh, I told my son's father who that's a whole nother story, but that doesn't matter. Uh, I told my son's father, Hey, listen, so my son's father had yet to pay child support. So one of the other reasons why I had no money was, you know, I needed to not only save for myself when I move out, but I also had to fend for my son. So I'm feeding two mouths or having to worry about feeding two mouths on no child support because my son's father still had paid me zero money up to this point. So 11, my son is 11 years old at this point, And he goes, uh, hey, or maybe he's 12 or 13. I don't know. He's around that age. He's like a preteen. And I call my son's father. I say, hey, listen, just so you know, um, I'm going to be leaving my fiance. Just want to let you know, because I'm a little nervous. I haven't been on my own for a very long time, literally over a decade to like fend for myself. I'm really scared. I'm nervous. So, you know, if I need some help from you, hundred bucks here, hundred dollars there to help with his school or, you know, clothes or whatever, I'm hoping I can count on you since you haven't paid me for 11 years. And I said it very nicely. You know, we were like good together. We weren't, he barely saw his son, you know, every once in a while. He didn't pay any child support, but I, I didn't hold any grudges. I didn't care. Um, and he was like, yeah, cool. hundred percent. No problem. Yes. Good for you. Great. So that summer is when I was going to leave. And I, uh, had it planned for like July, August, somewhere around there. And my son's father calls me up, you know, right before school starts. And he's like, Hey, do you mind? And I'm planning on leaving. I'm like finding places. I'm putting my name in applications in apartments and all this stuff. And, um, secretly kind of like boxing things away and whatever. My son's father calls me and says, Hey, can I take, uh, your, you know, our son on a camping trip? I'm like, sure, 100%. Yeah, no problem. Picks them up, takes them. Four-day camping trip. Supposed to be back on a Sunday. Calls me up. No, doesn't call me up. Um, 
Sunday comes around five o'clock in the afternoon. And I was like, um, sends him a text. Cause I started getting that mom intuition, sends him a text. Hey, uh, well, am I making dinner? Uh, you know, what, what time? Just kind of like feeling it out. No response. An hour later, I text him again. Hey, you know, is everything okay? He sends a text back. I will no longer be communicating with you through uh, text. I will now be communicating with you solely through email. And immediately, I just start shaking. I'm just losing my mind. And I open up my email, and there's this long email, probably the whole page long, basically saying, thank you so much for taking care of our son for the past blah, blah, blah years. Uh, I got it from here. And that was it. So I start blowing up his text, blowing up his fiance's text and saying, yeah, what? You can't do this. this is kidnapping. You can't do this. I don't even know what you're talking about. Bring him back. I'm having a complete panic attack by myself. My fiance's out of town at this point. I'm literally by myself. And uh, he cut off all social media. Both of them blocked me on all social media. But, um, blocked me on the phone, couldn't call, craziness, just absolute craziness. Call my mom, obviously freaking out, crying. She says, call a lawyer. So it's like seven o'clock at this point on a Sunday. I don't even know, you know? So call a couple acquaintances here, people I work with to get a lawyer. Call a lawyer, somehow answers on a Sunday. I don't even know. Basically says, you know, call him, tell him in an email that this is kidnapping. He tells me like what to write professionally so that there's like evidence, I guess, about how he's kidnapping and do that, no response. So around 10 o'clock, I do a Google search of their name, of uh, his fiance's name because he was living with her. And I find all the names in the South Florida area that are associated or all the addresses that are associated with her name, I get in my car and I just start driving around Miami, Florida, because they're in Miami. And there's probably like 27 names and addresses on this Google search, this like thing that I printed up. And I just keep hitting every house. Google, I put it in my Google Maps. I drive to the house, drive around the neighborhood, look for the cars, don't see one, put the next address in my phone. Go around again, blah, blah, blah. Literally 10, 11, 12 houses later, I find this freaking car in front of a house. My heart is pounding. I'm crying. Call the police and the police come. I'm super calm. Okay. I'm super calm. I'm mature. I'm not acting like a complete dingbat. Hello, officer. This son's father, my son's father has taken my son. He's been literally living with me for his entire life. Um, his dad's never even taken him to a doctor's appointment. He's paying that child support. He just took him on a camping trip and stole him basically. But there's no court order. We've never been to court. There's nothing stating that he's mine, nothing stating where he's at. So the police couldn't do anything. Long story short, obviously the story is ridiculous. It took a year 
I did wind up getting my son back after a couple of weeks, by the way. We had an emergency court order, but his father was fighting for full custody and um, <laughs> costed me $18,000. <sighs> yep. So I had $15,000 saved minus $3,000 uh, credit card debt, $18,000 to pay my lawyer and over the duration of time. And now we have a court order that states, you know, he can have them at this time and this time, blah, blah, blah. But he drug it out forever. And so needless to say, at this point, it would took an entire year. So at this point, I am literally wanting to die. Like, I remember sitting in a parking lot in my lawyer's office after I signed the paperwork. And the devastation and hopelessness again of just... You know, they say, you know, work real hard. <laughs> like, if you work real hard, then you'll make money and all of your dreams will come true. It's kind of like this American facade of if you just do all the things right, like, everything will just fall into place and be perfect. And it wasn't happening for me. You know, I was dealing with this insane narcissist who was beating me down mentally and emotionally and sexually and financially every single day. I wanted to drive my car off of a bridge every single day. And I told myself that if I worked really hard, and if I just put all of my effort and all of my tears and all of my strength and all of my power into creating power, which in this sense is finances, that I would feel the repercussions of my, um, of my work, of my work, that it would pay me back that it would pay me back. And I was bawling. I was bawling in my lawyer's parking lot with a contract that cost me $18,000 with two signatures on it, just feeling so defeated. And I had to make a choice. I sat there and I was like, this is either God punishing me for living in sin, for getting pregnant out of wedlock, for leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses, for not being a good daughter, for not being an exemplary um, uh, sister, because I'm the oldest, for my brother and sister, for um, shunning God, for not praying, for not going to church. This is like I'm, I am the... <laughs> there's no way out and God is going to continue to punish me forever, forever. And I'm going to have to live like this. No matter how hard I try, no matter how much time I put into this, this is just my destiny. My destiny is living with the devil. I am going to have to live out the duration of my life with 
the devil as my punishment for being such a horrible person. And I had another thought. Or I could do it again. I could do it again. I could start again. And after being all ridiculous in my car and crying by myself and slamming the steering wheel like they do in the movies and playing the music really loud, I decided to do it again. And decided to do it again. And um, doubled down again. Did a Google search. And I found this company called Fiverr.com. And Fiverr.com is the platform I used to escape. Um, at this point, I had started doing YouTube videos on health and wellness. I had started taking videos of my smoothies and putting them up on YouTube. It was like the one thing I could control. My fiance was okay with it because I was at home. I wasn't out. And uh, I used that video equipment to start doing marketing ads, promotions for other small companies that needed tutorials, that needed uh, um, testimonials. And I would charge anywhere between $50 to $300 per video fully edited. And about a year and a half, two years later, I had uh, $31,000 in my account. And I, um, June 21st, exactly four years after getting engaged to the day, I walked out. And uh, that was a really good day. It was a really good day. And when I say I walked out, I actually did just walk out. <laughs> um, during all of this, I had moved out of his room the last year I was with him. Um, I had taken the guest room, and I had taken on basically the name I, I used to call myself was the slave, is how I would refer to myself. So I, I had my own quarters in his house, and I had my own slave room. And uh, because of that, I was able to slowly move out without him even noticing. So I had opened up a secret storage unit, like, a, I don't know, nine months or something before I left. And because I lived in my own space, I just slowly opened emptied my own room into the storage unit, emptied my son's room. Uh, part of the court order that had happened was my son was with his father all summer. He got him for the entire summer. So I uh, was able to empty my entire son's room over the summer when he was gone. 
and put it all in the storage unit. And the, uh, the day that I left, uh, I had one dress, one pair of pajamas, and a toothbrush uh, left at his house. And, you know, about a month before that, I had got my own place and uh, was ready, you know. So the, the day that it all shit hit the fan, I just grabbed my dress, my pajamas, and my toothbrush. Had a complete scream fest, tried to get me back 5,000 times, and um, walked out the door, left my keys, left my phone, left my laptop, left everything, and just walked out. I literally walked out the door because I had no vehicle. I walked out the door with my dress, my pajamas, and my toothbrush, and walked home to my home. I've been silent here a lot, and you're amazing. Thank you. That's all I have to say. Thank you. You really are. To do it once, to do it twice, to have your son taken from you, and then to do it again. How resourceful you were. It's just amazing. Just amazing. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, uh, I still think about it, you know, sometimes. I have goosebumps and tears in my eyes. <laughs> like you. You. you, you. Whew. You, you're amazing. That is amazing. That you, whew, this has never happened to me. That, oh. that you were able to do that. Yeah. Woo. A lot of it. This is, uh, wow, this has never happened. Um, honestly. It's, whew, um, it's just, wow. Sorry, you were going to say something. I interrupted you. Um, you know, I, I think about it sometimes because, well, I'm sure every, <laughs> every, uh, individual in my circumstance thinks about it sometimes, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's surreal though, because, the difference between the saying of it doesn't matter how many times you fall, what matters is how many times you get up. It's so apparent because the situation in which I had to make a choice, you know, it's so visual in my head that day of I'm sitting down and actually having a conversation with myself in just in, in literal, literally like terror in complete and utter hopelessness um, and not being able to discuss it with anybody. I think that's the biggest thing is I was in so much isolation at this point and I felt so stupid at this point too because I had already got my parents involved 
you know, so I look dumb. Not to say that they're judging me that way, but like me feeling like they're judging me that way. And then my best friend getting her involved. And then I'm in the situation, just feeling so dumb, you know, and then trying to get out and then trying to get out. And then, and it's like how easy it would have been for me just to fall into and weaken myself into, I guess this is just my life. And, and I don't even know what it, that's what, I think that's what scares me so much is I don't even know why I did it again. Like, I don't know why I did it again. Like it's, it would have been easier for real. It would have been easier to not do it again because the amount of, like the little bit of sleep I I literally didn't sleep because you know editing so you know there's a difference between editing a little video about a smoothie (laughs) you know like a blender and then trying to do full-on edits for big corporations who are trying to make ads um, and the professionalism that has to go into it and the the audio that has to go into it and I have to look presentable And then the time and then having to, you know, do it around my fiance schedule and then do it on time because I was on deadlines in order to get paid correctly. Uh, And then also running the company and then also trying to keep up a house and then also trying to be there for my son. And then also I'm doing eBay and offer up. I mean, I was literally running on two to three hours of sleep every single day. And I could not. It was not okay for me to not be at 100%. If I showed up tired, if I showed up in a bad mood, if I showed up if in anything less than my optimistic go-getter, let's make money, everything's fantastic personality, I would get reamed. I would get absolutely reamed. So no coffee, Brandon. No caffeine. I haven't had caffeine since my pregnancy. Zero alcohol. Literally zero alcohol for like 15 years. No drugs. Just mental and emotional turmoil. And then having to show up in a good mood every single day. Every single day. In order to keep the facade up in order to keep him happy, in order to keep making money. It was, it was like a, it was like dumb. It was literally dumb for me to do it again. But I knew that I would rather live, I would rather live the rest of my life trying to get out than to bow down to a life of just absolute insanity. So I just told myself, I just told myself that I had to, I had to, I had to keep doing it again and again and again. And if anything, if anything, at least I could say that I tried because the last thing that I wanted was to be 60 years old And thinking to myself, 
what if? What if I would have just done it one more time? What if I just would have done it one more time? And thinking of the ramifications of my son, you know, as children get older, they start getting um, snooty. You know, they start talking back a little bit. They start testing their own power and thinking about how awful that could have gone, having two egos in the house and him breaking my son, you know, emotionally throughout that process. It's, um, it's scary. It's really scary thinking about how easy it would have been to just throw my hands up and say, well, I tried. Yeah. I guess this is it. I guess this is my destiny. So, you know, you're here in this, you know, space now. You're free. Yes. You're thriving. Yes. You know, after you are out and you have all of these resources, you are on your own, you know, are you doing therapy work, number one, and two, how does, you know, you got through this through your own gumption and you figured things out. You created businesses, you know, it's it's really astounding to me that you were able to do that and just kind of figure, you know, you taught yourself everything. So when you left you know, in my mind, you created a little empire, like after it would just continue. Um, and you know, what have been the biggest, uh, stumbling block blocks for you afterwards that you had to, uh, I guess, work on that because you've been in a prison for, you know, your whole life essentially. Yeah. I, um, so, so you would think that was the end. Oh, um, I, I, okay. Sorry, I was wrong. I was premature. Everyone, I, I, I know nothing about this story. Like, I don't. I, I, we, so I went in blind here. End. And that, and that is the end of the relationship. However, remember, um, I had complete control over literally every single thing, including his bank account. Um, I was not only leaving him, but I was also leaving his company. However, over the duration of our relationship. You know, I purposely put myself in that position and I also knew how much he depended on me. So, um, playing my own games because he played games. I felt the right to play games. Um, when I left, I didn't leave him, um, I didn't leave him a ledger. (laughs) I left him nothing. So he couldn't access anything but the front door of his office. He didn't even know the password to the computers. So, uh, you know, a couple people that worked with us, you know, knew a few things here and there he could get by, but he was calling me up every hour on the hour, leaving me these long messages of, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. 
she doesn't know how to do this. They don't know how to do that. I can't believe you did this. You know, you have to come back. I love you. I want to be with you. All the same love bombing, all the same. You're wonderful. You're awesome. You're fantastic. I never would have done this without you. Anything you want, all this crap, same stuff, same, 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 all, all over. And I went uh, completely no contact for almost a month. Um, and he's just calling me literally daily, every hour on the hour. And I'm just friggin' living my best life at home, making videos. I'm not, I don't even get a job. I didn't even get a job. I just kept selling on eBay and I kept selling, uh, kept doing my, uh, Fiverr videos. And that's how I was paying for all of my stuff. And I didn't have a car, you know, so I had no insurance and no car and no gas. I had paid my rent six months up front. So I'm just living the life. And knowing that I had a plan. So about a month you know, later, I finally answered the phone, just out of the blue. Just one of the calls, I decided to answer. He freaks out. Oh, my God, I can't believe you answered the phone. Anything you want, anything at all that you want. So I freaking pitched him a ridiculous amount, a ridiculous amount, salary, plus commission, plus a car, plus benefits, plus insurance, plus gas. And he said, yes, 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 to every single thing I asked for. And it was big. It was big. So went back to work on Monday. Went back to work on Monday and whether or not that was a good idea or not a good idea or the dumbest thing I've ever done, I still don't know how to gauge it. Um, but I kept working for him for two years. It was by far, minus the sexual abuse, it was by far the worst two years of my life, if that makes any sense. Uh, because, you know, I was, I went back to working my 10 hour days, 10, 11 hour days. So I was basically with him. And at this point he decides to show up every single day, which he was not doing previously. And he's deciding to micromanage every single thing that I do. So he, it was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. I stuck with it for two years. And every week I threatened to quit. Every week I cried myself to sleep. Uh, when I wasn't with him, uh, at home, when I was at home, you know, 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, one in the morning, he'd be calling me. All hours, every day, weekends, it was impossible to date if he knew I was going on a date because my coworker told my one coworker who told him or whatever. Um, he would make it, he'd call me 16 times that night and ask, you know, same thing, dumb. Where's the stapler? You know, why isn't the printer working? It's dumb stuff, you know. And um, Six months before I decided to leave, I gave him a six-month notice, you know, a year and a half in, and basically said, I can't do this anymore. This is it. 
I was trying to make it work. I was trying to do the whole let's build an empire thing together, but you are absolutely impossible to work for. Um, he was still coming on to me. He was still trying to, like, sexually assault me in the corners of the office, telling me I was hot, slapping my ass, still calling me babe. All the way up until the day I left, he was still calling me babe, um, still, you know, friggin' acting like we're together, but not together, still asking me to move back, still asking me to bear his children, you know, let's forget all of this happened, move back in. And um, I told him, you know, I'm leaving, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. You're absolutely insane. I thought maybe doing one and not the other, you know, the work versus relationship or relation. I thought maybe I could handle you in just like one space, but I can't. I can't handle you in one space. You're you're insane. So I told him to bring someone else in. I said, I'm leaving literally on this date. This is the date I am leaving. Bring someone in. If you don't have somebody in, then you're shit out of luck. Like, I don't know what to tell you. You're going to have to take all the responsibilities on yourself. Um, because he was purposely, in the beginning, anyone that I would bring in, he didn't like. You know, she's too this. She's too that. She's not going to be able to do this. She can't do that. Blah, blah, blah. So I just, you know, I'm like, bring someone in. I don't care who. You do it. You bring someone in. If you don't, if you're going to play this game, you know, where I don't train somebody, then you're fucked. Because, sorry. Then, you know, that's just, Sorry. So he brought someone in, and guess who he decided to bring in? <laughs> who? His girlfriend of one month. So he decides to bring in his girlfriend of one month. Now, similar to me, she has no money. <laughs> she has a broken down car. She is not even a citizen of the United States of America. She <laughs> is just as broken and just as uh, insignificant as I was when I met him. So uh, I see all the signs. I'm now fully versed in narcissism, and I know exactly what he's doing. And I had a really hard time. I had a really hard time training her. Her and I were basically twins, absolutely identical in all ways, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, work ethic, um, heart, soul, mind, caring. Like she could have been my soul sister for real. And I, I can't even tell you how much guilt I felt not telling her, hey, he is a narcissist. But as we read in all the forums and all the material and all the areas, there is no, um, you can't tell somebody that. You, there's, it's stupid to, to tell somebody that. So I warned her, you know, she came in crying several times during the last few months I was with her, you know, last four, I trained her for four months and, um, you know, crying, hey, is this normal? Hey, he freaked out about this. He freaked out about that. You know, did he do this with you? Did he do this with yet? You know? And uh, I did my best to stay calm. I did my best to say, you know, it's first time jitters. Yes, he does have a temper sometimes. This is how you can kind of like get around it. Kind of taught her a couple tricks that she can use that I learned. And, you know, four months later, I basically shook her hand and said, good luck. Walked out. So, uh, 
So officially no contact now <laughs> for years. Uh, but, uh, you know, I did endure it for another two years after that. Uh, where I am now, I'm freaking, I run my own company. I still do eBay. I still do OfferUp. I still do... Um, uh, Fiverr. Yep. I still do all the things. And, uh, you know, and obviously I've created other ways of making money, you know, since then. But uh, I, I work for myself. I mentor as many women as I can in narcissism. And I uh, I love it. I I love that I went through what I went through. I love my story because uh, it's so easy to give up. And, uh, you know, the fact that I didn't is, it gives, it gives hope, you know, it gives hope. And, and I'm, I'm proud. I am proud of myself. I am proud of myself for, for sticking with it because not, not just for myself though. Not just because like, oh, look where I am now, but because I'm now able to sit down with you and share a story. And, uh, you know, I know that there's women out there who have tried. I know that there's women out there who've, you know, who have left or come back and are thinking about doing it again and just thinking about the work that it's going to take to get out again. It's a lot. It's a lot. I'm still amazed like um you've been through so much and today you're going to give hope to so many people out there who are listening you know when I started doing this one of the biggest things that I couldn't figure out or not, that's not a, a good way of saying it. One of the biggest things that I saw that there was this giant hole was I got this email from someone in a small town in Michigan and they didn't have a way out. They couldn't see a way out. They were a single mom and inside this home, they weren't allowed to do anything. Couldn't get a bank account, couldn't do a thing. Yeah. And I didn't know how to help that person. There was no helping that person. They didn't have any hope. And I, when I communicated back a couple of times, they said, there is no hope for me. And then it's the last I ever heard from them. <gasps> and oh my. that oh. was something that always stuck with me. And, you know, part of the mandate kind of in my mind of the show was how do you help those people? How do you give those people hope? And how do you give those people tools to get out of those situations. And you're someone who found tools for yourself and built tools. And you are a beacon of hope for those people. And I just really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here with me today and sharing your story because, you know, you are hope to me. You are hope. You're, you're, you know, in movies, you're Andy Dufresne from, <laughs> from the Shawshank Redemption. Yes. You know, and as he once said, um, was hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Yes. 
Absolutely. hundred percent. So, and, and, and quite honestly, you know, I appreciate you for freaking having a platform like this because narcissism is so, it's so secretive. It's so silent and it, it, it literally breaks people. It breaks people. And when you feel like you're the crazy one, when you feel like you're the insane one, and there's nobody to relate to. It's so difficult. It's so difficult to, to feel like your feelings are valid, that your story is valid. You know, so you having a platform like this where women can come on and, and share their experience. I mean, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Well, I don't really have to do much. It's, it's you and everyone else who's been on the show. I just, you know, I had a microphone and it's you guys that do all of the work and you guys are the people that are uh, going to be saving so many people's lives. And really from the bottom of my heart, uh, thank you so much. I know we're going to be in contact for a long time. Yes. Um, so thank you for being here. And before, you know, last words of wisdom that we usually get to words of wisdom or advice for everyone before, before we leave. Um, I say the same thing. Every single time I say, dive into your situation and figure out what you're learning. So it's so easy to fall into a victim mentality of this is happening to me and I am being hurt and I am being hindered and I am hopeless. Um, switch your mentality to what am I learning in this experience? What can I get from this experience, even in the worst of times, even when you feel like you're dying inside, you're learning something. There is something, there is some um, lesson that you are learning that you need to figure out, grasp, so that you can use it in your future. And uh, that's what I did. Everything, everything he said to me, everything that was done to me, I would turn off the victim of he's doing this to me. And I would turn on a student and I would say, what am I learning from this situation? What is he teaching me right now that I can use in my future? And when you start to view your life, no matter how difficult it is, no matter what's being done, no matter what's being said, what are you learning? And that's, that's how I got through. Well, Valentina, thank you so much for being here with me today. And, you know, as I said before, I, I think you're amazing. And, you know, this has been, you know, this is a special episode. So you're a special person. And uh, not that anyone else is not special who's been on here before, but this is, this is really, truly amazing uh, episode. Um, so thank you. And, uh, from myself and Valentina, we hope you have a good night.